This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Airdrie's Boys, Fostering as a Family Form, and the author, Airdrie Thompson Guppy. And Airdrie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Airdrie. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. A great story, true story about fostering five young boys, and of course we'll learn the rest of the story as we talk about your book. But let me read a couple things that you have written. You say this, This is a story of five adolescent boys who lived with us for a very short period of time, but who came back to tell their story. The story spans almost 50 years so these boys, uh, all from uh, troubled backgrounds or dysfunctional families, was that the case? That's right. These boys were around 13, 14, 15 years of age. They were not all with us at the same time, but they all came because they were in great difficulty, uh, either with the law or because of family circumstances, and uh, they couldn't remain in their own homes. Now, tell us about your background, Airdrie, and then what led to publishing this book. My background. Well, I'm um, at the time, in 1964, I just had a B.A. in psychology, and I had gone to the Children's Aid Society. I was married, and my husband had a job, but I needed a job, too, and I had a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And I went to the Children's Aid to ask for a job, I thought they'd be glad to um, have me because I'd worked in Montreal and Toronto. But the director said, no, we won't hire you. You go home and look after your baby. Well, I was pretty shocked with that, so much so that I didn't look for another job in Kitchener-Waterloo, two small towns in Ontario, and I just thought that's uh, what they did there. But they did have my resume, so um, a couple of months later, two women visited me and told me that they had some money from a, an orphanage that had closed, and they wanted to do a pilot project, having a group home for adolescent boys who were in a fair bit of trouble. So when they told me that, I said, well, no, that's not really what I do. But they came back again, and um, I, wa- um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it. But my husband and I discussed it, and we decided, since it was a pilot project and it was for one year, that perhaps we could give it a try because I did have a fair bit of background in working with children and families. So that's how it started. So this time that you had with these five adolescent boys, uh, you really proved the importance of connection, didn't you? I mean, to be connected to something, to someone, well, in this case, to a family. Yes, I think so. One of the boys was only with us for two weeks, and the seriousness of the event that brought him temporarily to our home led him on to training school, which was like an adolescent jail. 
So he wasn't with us for very long. But um, there was very little, there was no response from his family. So at Christmas time, um, when the, the other uh, boys went home to their families, they asked us if we would take him, and of course we did. Uh, so there were intermittent times um, that we did see him, and then, then he lived near us, and, and uh, we did see him, and then he went out west, so we didn't see him. But uh, when they took him after two weeks with us, I asked them, please don't do this. Leave him with us. Don't send him to training school, but, but they did. And within the first week, he lost his two front teeth. And after that, he learned all the wrong things that you shouldn't do in life. So uh, that really wasn't a good solution. But the other thing that we're learning with um, group homes is that to have them staffed with people on shift work really isn't a family environment. It's just another kind of institution. And so I think the good response to my book is that people are seeing that there really has to be a family for these disturbed kids um, so that they can learn some functioning within those uh, four walls of that house. And your book also is a story that an example of the power of one person. Um, well, I guess so. You know, I was only 24, so there were a lot of things I just kind of did because I did them. I was from a big family myself, and so we incorporated the boys as part of our family, even if they were there for a very short period of time. And I think that's very different from some foster situations. There are many, many, many wonderful foster situations and foster parents, but there are many children who fall between the cracks. And so um, I think that that to give them an experience of being accepted, of having um, boundaries, um, having expectations for them, was a whole new experience. And and some of them told me later that that carried them forward, even when they got in trouble. So and you you had to you and your husband had to accept these boys. Uh, kind of an unconditional acceptance, right where they were at. Well, that's what we did. Because it was a pilot project, there were, there, there, there were no guidelines. They just said, Airdrie, you know, look after these boys. Nobody, nobody um, made recommendations about how we do that. There was one saving grace, though, and that was that every month at the Children's Aid Society, they had a meeting uh, for the staff with a psychiatrist, and they could present a difficult case for discussion. And so for the year that we had our group home, because I had done social work, I was the presenter each month for that year. And I think I, I think they learned a lot from the experiences I had with the kids, some, some of which were not so easy. But it also helps me through the discussion to go back home and carry on and, and understand some of the things that were going on. That kind of consultation isn't usually available to foster parents with very difficult kids. So very often when they get in trouble, then they have to move on to another foster home, and they haven't learned from that experience, so they move on to another foster home, and um, at 16, they're out on their own, and they haven't really learned enough. They haven't haven't learned what scientists call or refer to the social brain? 
right and boundaries in in society. And of course, in a family, in a home, there has to be boundaries. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, there's there's one one situation with one of the boys where um, I came downstairs one morning and I could see in the living room and and he took a swipe at my daughter. He didn't hurt her. She didn't cry, but he did it. And I felt that's not okay in my home. And I discussed it with the psychiatrist who said, no, that's really not okay. He'll have to leave. Now, nobody explained to me what the plan was, where he was going, all the rest of it. But indeed, he went back to his own family. And this was a kid who was very belligerent and he didn't talk very much. But just before he left, I I just spoke to him and said, I'm really sorry that we weren't able to do anything for you, but maybe now that you've lived with another kind of family, maybe you can go home and appreciate your mom and dad and understand why they set rules for you. And whatever else I said 50 years ago, I don't really remember what it was. But it was very interesting because he left and I didn't hear anything about him from the children's aid or anywhere else. And about Four years afterwards, after one summer night, after we'd come home from the cottage, there was a knock at the door, and there he was. So I welcomed him in, and, and we had a glass of lemonade on the porch, and I didn't say a word. He spoke to me for an hour about what he was doing and how he'd finished school, and he had a job, and he had a girlfriend, and life was going well for him. And on and on and on he went, and at the end of the hour, he said, I want to thank you so much for what you mm. did for me. And even when I tell you that, it, you know, it brings tears to my sure. eyes. Because what did I do for him, right. you know? I had the urge to say these few words as he went out the door, but I guess he took them with him. Mm. And so he thanked me, and he left, and I never saw him again. But I just believe in my heart that he went ahead and he did okay in life. My book kind of follows. It's, it's, it's the, the path of each of the five boys. So that's as far as I went, as I knew, but I just decided that mm-hmm. he was okay. Now, three of these five came back to see you in their later years. They did. I think, um, that the, uh, push of it was that, that, um, my husband had died, and and I think they were concerned for me, like the tables were turned. And, uh, you know, I was an old lady, and they were grown men. And they came to see that I was okay, and we sat around the dining room table telling stories and sharing interests and just laughed a lot. And they told me things that I didn't know had happened, but I reminded them of, the, or tried to remind them of things, of course, they'd forgotten some of the things that they had done, but you can read it in the book. And we had a wonderful time. And and at the end of our visit, you know, they just decided that they thought their story should be told. So I thought, well, I guess we have to tell the story. And I said, but you know, you have to change your names. So they just went around the table and they each picked the name that you see in the book. (laughs) And there was no hesitation. It was like one, two, three. And then when I told my daughter that, you know, they changed their name. She said, well, if they can change their name, I can change my name too. <laughs> so, so she's Trisha in the book. Yeah, and there's Lefty and Bob and Johnny and Val and Dan. So, mm-hmm. Very good. Now, 
Should foster children automatically be adopted? No, I don't believe so. I've done a lot of adoption work, and it, it all depends on their circumstances. If, it's, if, if they're placed um, in, in fostering care um, just to see how they're adjusting and to um, assess why it is they're available for adoption and, and how they're going to manage, then that can be a very nice transition to adoption. So I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I'm saying they shouldn't automatically. And, uh, you know, my boys were older, so there never was any question. And, you know, 13 to 16, you know, they, they weren't uh, in care very long before they were out on their own anyway, joined back with their family or not. And they weren't all joined back with their family. But I think that I think that one of the re- one of the outcomes of this book is to raise the awareness of fostering because we talk about adoption, we talk about our children, we talk about marriage, but who sits around and talks about fostering? Hmm. Not many people unless they're foster parents. Well, you're so, called a pioneer because uh, this review said we learn about the early days of a system of foster care before it was a system. That's right. Yeah. And, so you, you know, were just uh, doing what you felt, just I guess from the heart. That's right. That's right. And and you know, like um, there are no coincidences, but you know, like it just happened. And and when I started this work, I went back to the Children's Aid Society where this all originated to see if they had any information. And they had some board minutes, but not very much information. But they welcomed the idea of what I was doing because they didn't have any studies of children over a 50-year period and what really happened to them. Mm. So now uh, that that director um, of Children's Aid, which in Canada is now Family and Children's Services, um, I sent her a book to thank her, and she told me, it's not very big, you can read it in an evening, but she went out into her backyard and she read it, and she said she came into the house and she ordered 20 copies for her senior staff. She said, we've been grappling. We know that, that um, if, if we have uh, staff in these group homes, that's not really working for kids because they change shifts and there isn't the continuity. And what you did 50 years ago or 47 years ago is what we're grappling with of how we can do it. So that's kind of interesting that mm. they, well, that is the model that they are looking at now. Another reviewer said the voices of the boys, their troubles, struggles, successes, and true-to-life stories are both heart-wrenching and heartwarming. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all happy. And I'm sure. Some of them had been through terrible, terrible things for their young years. So again, this sense of belonging and the safety that it provides, even a little bit of time, it's, it's remarkable the impact that you had on these young boys. Well, I think that, um, that yes. <laughs> um, you know, I think other people can do this too. Um, but I also think that our agencies are, are underfunded and, and they can't do a lot of the things that they know they should be doing, like having family group homes. And so we need to start thinking about, as a society, how can we support them? How do we fundraise? We fundraise for a million things, but we never fundraise for foster care. 
So I was hoping that that was one of the things that might come out of this. I didn't think that when I wrote it, but afterwards when there was discussion, I thought, we need to raise the profile here. We've been listening to Airdrie Thompson Guppy. She is the author of her book, Airdrie's Boys, Fostering as a Family Form. Airdrie, tell us how to get your book. You can get it through Amazon.com. Is that the same in Canada and the States? I believe it is. Uh-huh. Or you can go to Um In Canada, you, you'll be able to get it at Chapters. And in the States, I think it'll be available at Barnes & Noble. Very good, Airdrie. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. I'm happy to have done so. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, You Are Here, and the author is Chris Deliani, and Chris joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chris. Hi there, Steve. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, I want to read a couple things you've written about your book. You say this, a young painter trying to rebuild his life in San Francisco finds himself the unlikely love object of two very different men. You also say this, it's not a coming out story. It's not about homophobia. Here the characters are more or less out and have been living in the community for years. The conflict in this story comes from within the community. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris. This is not your first book, and tell us uh, how this 
theme, this uh, plot all came about? Well, I started this book a long time ago, actually, in the mid-90s, soon after I moved out to San Francisco for good. And, I mean, what interested me, uh, by, by the time that happened... Um, you know, I had been out in the community for many years, and what interested me was not so much the conflict. I, I never really experienced uh, real homophobia firsthand at that time, um, but the conflicts that I was sort of noticing were ones that were occurring uh, in the community. You know, between me and other uh, me and other gay people, and other gay people, you know, with each other, and that's kind of what I wanted to explore there wasn't really interested in writing a coming out story. I wasn't really interested in writing a story about, uh, you know, uh, gay people fighting uh, homophobia. I was kind of just more interested in sort of exploring uh, the sorts of conflicts that occur uh, among gay people. Now, tell us about Peter Bankston, a young painter. Why choose him uh, to be a painter? A painter? You know, I sort of, it was almost at random, uh, the um, at around the same time, I actually uh, took a trip uh, to Paris to the uh, to, to Paris for a week. I had a little time and I had a little money, so I, I got a sort of a, a, a cheap trip uh, over there. And it was there I went to the uh, to the Louvre, where you know the Mona Lisa hangs. But there is another painting there that uh, really intrigued me. Um, it's called uh, the Cheat, and it's a it's a it's a poker playing. Uh, painting and it's a, it's an amazing painting and I'd never known it existed before and I just I just loved it and uh it stayed with me ever since and I think and it was around the time I was sort of creating uh Peter Bankston's character and I thought god wouldn't it be wonderful to you know j- to be a painter uh you know I have no I have no drawing experience whatsoever um so it sort of coincided with my interest in uh, art and museums and, you know, the, the artistic process. So it, they sort of went hand in hand. Now, Peter's having a hard time making a living. He is. San Francisco, I mean, San Francisco is a fabulous place, but uh, unfortunately it is a very expensive one. So if you, you know, realistically, if you're young and you want to move here, move out here for for, for good, um, you know, unless you are, you know, you work for a dot-com or something, uh, you're going to experience some uh, some pretty lean times. I myself did not experience uh, the the lean times that that Peter has, I and mean, he's really got nothing. Truly a star- starving artist. And really, just wants to be left alone. More or less, uh, he has a uh, sort of a past uh, that he wants to leave behind, a family past that he just wants to forget about. And what all he really wants to do, certainly when the story begins is uh, just sort of be in his own cocoon and work on his art and uh, just not be bothered by anybody. What he doesn't realize is that he can't really create art unless he actually gets out into the world. And then he meets Donald. Tell us about Donald Manti. Ma- yeah, Monte Manti. Manti. I, I, you know, uh-huh. I was going for the spelling. And an older so guy, an older it. guy. Older guy, yeah, he is actually sort of a lesser. He's a he's one of the one of the more minor characters, but he sort of introduces Peter to the big bad world uh, that is San Francisco, and also sort of a uh, living example that when it comes to dating and having a first date, uh, you know, it is uh, often uh, often a crapshoot. Sometimes you get lucky, and sometimes you, sometimes you don't get lucky. 
And in Peter's case, I mean, all I'll say is that he really does not, uh, uh, he draws a losing ticket on, uh, on, that, uh, on that particular date. Now, you also have a theme about bullying in, in your book. I do. Um, well, the, I guess the, the well, bullying has been, I find it a very, it's a very interesting topic. I've been following all the bullying stories. You know, it's a hot topic now, and it's one that I follow. Um, what I really wanted to explore in the book uh, in terms of the bullying is uh what I really wanted to sort of examine is sort of the bullying that takes place uh, between uh, between gay people, the pe- you know the, the things that gay people do to each other to hurt each other, and that is what's being explored there, and not so much you know being you know you know looking back to when you were in high school and when you were bullied and have that affect the rest of your life. Like uh, that's what I think about you know when I think about when I was growing up in high school, I think about less of when other people were being mean or cruel to me, it's when I was being mean or cruel to somebody else. Uh, you know, not, certainly not to the extent that what, you know, you read about in the papers now, but I just think, you know, if I said something or did something that I regret, and that's kind of what I was going for, that's what I was exploring uh, when uh, I wrote about that. And also exploring the power of forgiveness? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, important, uh, you know, to, I think it's important, uh, not just, uh, for, for everybody, you know, when looking back, you think about somebody doing something mean to you, you know, who knows, uh, what was going on in their mind and time has passed. And I think it's important to, it, it's important for everyone to be able to, you know, sort of forgive it and let it go and move on. And at the same time, forgive yourself for the person that you were, as, uh, you know, forgive yourself for what you may have, uh, regretted doing in your past. And you did research about San Francisco to kind of bring a lot of life to your novel. Yeah, yeah. The research, I'm not really, you know, uh, book research, I always uh, admire people who write historical novels because they really have to sit in front of a lot of books and do a lot of reading and do, a, you know, a lot of, uh, in a lot of desk work. Um, I, uh, but I, for, for this book, I didn't have to do that. I mean, the, my research was, I did all my research this time with my feet. I uh, went everywhere. There's a scene that takes place in a diner, a very intense scene that takes place in a diner. So I went to diners around the city, just sitting down and listening to conversations and sort of taking in the scene there so I could get all the details down to make that scene vivid. There's a scene, my absolute favorite scene uh, that I did research for, um, was actually occurs towards the end of the book, um, where uh, that takes place at Ocean Beach, which is uh, right on the Ocean Beach is on the, the western side of San Francisco. Just sitting on one of the dunes and taking everything in, and just sort of imagining my characters there and having this scene. And then also uh, 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 Pride Day 2009, which uh, Pride Day 2009 is an actual event in the book. Um, I was actually there, Pride Day 2009, uh, by myself with my notebook, writing everything down. Something like Pride Day, I mean, the, the scene practically writes itself because everything, there's just so much going on. The real challenge there is to try to write it all down, try to get it all down before it's all gone. It's kind of, I guess that's the challenge for any writer, really, try to just try to get it, get it down. And what are the conflicting perspectives about the Gay Pride Parade that happened back in 2009? Well, I mean, actually, the, 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 the different perspectives are very much, uh, like, in, 
they're very much my own thoughts uh, as I go to Gay Pride. I've been going to Gay Pride parades for a very long time now. It's been my first Gay Pride parade would have been, I think, gosh, I think it would have been 1989. So, uh, yeah, a whole 20 years before I actually wrote the book. And there's a part, you know, there's a, the part of, in, in, you know, the, the, the Gay Pride movement has been going on for such a long time that I think there's a certain complacency going in there and there's a certain sort of, you know, maybe maybe a little bit of silliness going on there, but ultimately, at root, uh, in in the parade is you know a very important message that still uh, resonates today, even if it doesn't have the urgency as it did maybe you know in the in the 70s or early 80s. I think it still uh, matters uh, for everyone to get out there and be counted one way or the other. Or who is another key character in the book? Key characters. Well, there's uh, well, there's so many. Uh, we have uh, so there's Peter. There's also Miles. He's sort of the second uh, point in the triangle. He is uh, having uh, trouble getting over a relationship, and in his case, he uh, uh, has the door uh, slammed uh, shut in front of him. He was supposed to be. This takes the, the the book takes place at the end of 2008, right after uh, Proposition 8 passed uh, here in California. That is the ban on gay marriage. In his case, he was actually engaged to be married. Uh, breaks up with his fiance, the fiance disappears, and then the election passes. So Miles feels uh, a bit uh, uh, left out of the process. Left out, well, not out of the process. Sort of, you know, he feels like his one opportunity has slipped by him, and he, you know, he spends uh, much, uh, much of the book uh, just essentially looking for the fiance, trying to salvage what he can from the disaster that's happened. So that's the second point of the triangle. The third point of the triangle is uh, Nick, who is very laid back, very easygoing, very good looking, really hasn't had, a tro- hasn't had trouble getting boyfriends or sexual partners or anything like that. And uh, he finds himself getting drawn to, you know, sort of the one person who kind of doesn't really like him, kind of sort of sees him for who he is, which is sort of, you know, kind of a not, not a very, not a very serious guy. Um, those, you know, those are the two main characters. His character, in a sense, is the character I kind of thought of the first. Um, he, uh, his inspiration actually comes from a, for me, comes from a Jane Austen novel. My first, uh, my first real love of literature came from reading uh, Mansfield Park by uh, Jane Austen, in which there is a very rakish, good-looking, rakish character. Mm-hmm. Women fall all over him, and he, what does he do? He finds up. Uh, finds himself getting intrigued by and drawn into, you know, attracted to the one person he can't really have, and that's what he wants. And there's something very, you know, shallow and selfish about it. Um, so that really, you know, inspired that character. What role does the ocean play in your novel? Well, the ocean, I, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but I will say that the ocean, uh, the the ocean got the role in the novel when I actually went to Ocean Beach to, you know, write that scene, looking out on the ocean and thinking, you know, what what a nice metaphor it is for what I'm trying to write here, which is, you know, you know, it's 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 very beautiful, but then it's also very large and it's also very dangerous and you don't know where it's going to take you. And I saw it as sort of a metaphor for life that um for the life that I was trying to, to get down into words in, in that book. And, uh, you know, all I'll just say is that the ocean can be a very inspiring thing for art. Your book has some very intense scenes as well. 
Yes, yes, and I'm very happy to say I never lived any of those scenes, so I'm thankful for that. So essentially what I did was, it, it's the, the book uh, in, its in, in its initial uh, drafts was a little on the bland side, and as I kept rewriting, just sort of uh, cranked up the intensity and finally uh, got myself out of my... Uh, my comfort zone in, in the writing process to sort of write about the sorts of things that I don't think I put, I, I, that I know for a fact that I personally would never do. And I hope to heaven, uh, never have to go through. And I hope to have no, no one else ever has to go through, um, in, in that book. That's all I'll say about that. Just, uh, one more question, Chris, uh-huh. which character would you say you feel closest to emotionally closest to emotionally closest to, you know, that is a hard one to say. You know, the three main characters, I lent, actually, I lent a lot of myself to all the characters. Um, you know, as an artist, I suppose I would, you know, find, find myself emotionally close to Peter. You know, sort of his, his journey as an artist uh, is very similar to my journey as a writer. Um, for Miles, uh, you know, his, his, his anger, his frustration, uh, that's certainly a part that was uh, fortunately not, not so much uh, these days, but definitely a part of this, this feeling that you're sort of shut out from the world um, is definitely one that I've experienced. And it's a very kind of terrifying experience when you're actually in, you know, among other gay people and, fe- and feeling that way. That really is very terrifying. And then in Nick's case, you know, I don't know what to say. Nick, um, uh, you know, in his case, as it happens, after all the after all the rewriting, Nick's character is actually biographically comes the closest to my own. He's of Greek descent. He's he's born in Boston. He's the last of four kids. Um, you know, uh, I he's not I you know he's not a character I, I particularly care for. But I will leave it to my readers to decide uh, just how much uh, I resemble that character. We've been listening to Chris Deliani. He is the author of his book, You Are Here. Chris, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it, well, pretty much anywhere. If you type my name in, uh, type uh, Chris Deliani into uh, the Google search engine, you should, you should be able to find it on Google eBooks, Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Nobles and, of course, on iUniverse. Thanks for being with us, Chris, on iUniverse Radio. All right. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. 
Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you, here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Faces in the Fire, book one, The Women of Beowulf. And the author is Donita L. Rogers, and Donita joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Donita. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Beowulf, a, I guess, a, a traditional required reading for what grades usually? Uh, upper level, high school, and, and college. Okay. And uh, some, uh, some, you know, some of this story is a bit bewildering to people because we go back to the uh, 5th and 6th centuries in the Viking era, but you're taking a whole different slant on this. Let me read what you've written to introduce everyone to your book. You say this, Faces in the Fire tells the Beowulf story from a unique point of view, that of Freya Waru, the king's young daughter, a mere child when the monster Grendel first attacks. It is chock full of Viking lore, ancient tales and chants, runes and riddles, herbal remedies and rituals, all touched with magic and mystery. I guess that's what made it so tough when I remember reading it. It's filled with all this mystery and magic. <laughs> it was somewhat lacking in the original. <laughs> the original. Boy, tough reading, tough reading. But you've really uh, taken this very unique, unique point of view. Uh, tell us about yourself, Danita, and why you decided to do this. Well, I spent years teaching Beowulf to high school seniors and to uh, people in junior college. And it occurred to me that the men always get to tell the stories, and the women seldom get their story heard. So it became my mission when I retired from teaching to essentially rewrite Beowulf from a female point of view. So it's sort of a coming-of-age story with uh, the hero's journey turned into the heroine's journey. And I wanted it to be accessible to somebody who had never heard of Beowulf in their entire lives and could enjoy it on a different level. Now, you had to do quite a lot of research to uh, because she's not mentioned very much in the original. Only once, and that's in retrospect. Okay. And Beowulf says, oh, there was this cute chick back in the kingdom. <laughs> I could have gotten her as a reward, but she's already promised to somebody else. Shucks. The king's that daughter. Was, that was my reading. Yeah, yep. the king's uh-huh. daughter, Freya Waru. Right. And just call her Freya. Let's just call her Freya. That's right, a lot let's easier. just call her Freya. Yeah. So, as you... I this... read a lot of books. I went to Scandinavia. I oh. crewed on a Viking ship. My goodness. I climbed burial mounds. I spent hours <laughs> in museums. I soaked up everything I could, and then I came home and squeezed it out onto paper. You crewed on a Viking ship. I did, one afternoon, but wow. that counted. <laughs> yes, that did count. That must have been just a thrill. It was. It was out of Roskilde Harbor in Denmark. 
where I was uh, staying to soak up atmosphere. Because so, nearby, nearby so, is supposedly the site of the mead hall that she grew up in. So how did Viking men treat Viking women? Very well. Viking women had more freedoms than almost anybody in Europe or England at that time. Uh, women had to be just as strong as the men because the men were often gone raiding or doing something else. Uh, Viking women could marry and divorce and inherit property. Uh, I think they were quite advanced for this time in history. And you're a champion, you call yourself, a champion of women. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. why is that? Hmm. I've had to survive a lot of challenges in my own life, and it occurred to me that this young woman in the Beowulf story certainly had similar challenges. How did she face them? How did she overcome, for example, uh, a monster that slays 30 men at once? I mean, this is almost like a 9-11 attack uh, in her world. How do you deal with these great challenges? And I thought it would be inspirational to other people to uh, follow her story. And he cuts them to pieces with his sharp teeth, too, doesn't he? Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) He is the ultimate monster, Grendel. Now, as you look at some of the characters, I guess let's find out more about Freya. Tell us about her. All right. The story starts out when she's about four years old, and the first book goes through her young womanhood and her marriage to a rival chieftain. But along the way, she has to deal with a lot of strong male figures. Uh, One of them that I picked out is an unusual character. His name is Unferth, and people know that he has killed his own brothers, which is a big no-no in that society. You don't commit fratricide. But he is treated with great respect, in the court. Her father dotes on him practically. And I thought, well, what's, what's with this character? Why do people look up to him even though he's got this shady background? So I gave a lot of focus to Unferth as a kind of shaman figure in the court. Uh, one scene, I've even got him talking to the dead head of a rival chieftain. He's decapitated him and he's talking to the head to get information from the underworld. So he was a juicy character to develop. And of course, since this book is filled with magic, mystery, all kinds of uh, rituals. and It is. Loaded. <laughs> loaded. And all this Viking lore. Tell us some of the other uh, just wild characters. Well, she's got a, uh, what would it be, her cousin, uh, Rothalf. In that society, uh, nephews often were sent to live with their uncles for sort of finishing school. And in this case, the nephew becomes a rival uh, for her own brothers to succeed the father as king. And he becomes a real figure in history. He comes to be known as Rolf Cracky later in, in uh, Swedish circles. But he starts out as a really nasty kid. And so I've made him a kind of villain, and the kind of villain that you'd love to just put your fingers around his neck and choke him. But he's got to live on because he has roles to play in all three novels. So he is really a foil to the women of the uh, book. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because most of the men, like the king and his best buddy, are are pretty noble figures, uh, sort of grandfatherly. So I needed some people who were not so nice. So the the nephew and uh, the shaman are those people. And then toward the end of the book, I introduce a mother-in-law. As one of my readers said, she's the mother-in-law from hell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that uh, Freya has to deal with. 
she comes from northern Germany. So my, my books get all over the map. When I finished the series, we'll have included every country in Scandinavia and gone to England. So there's a wide range of possibility for interesting characters. And, of course, Beowulf shows up to fight the monster. Absolutely. you got to have him there. Oh, yeah. Well, in the first book, Beowulf is not a big player because he just shows up once in her life, does his job, and leaves. But in the second book, which takes place in Sweden, which is his country, he's a major player. So there's, there's more to the story, as they say. And, of course, he can only fight the monster, Grindel. He has to have all kinds of magic and, and uh, I guess, other, other attributes of, uh, of, of his kind to fight that monster. Actually, not. not. He's loaned all sorts of magical things, you know, swords and helmets. He decides to go it alone with his bare hands, and this is true to the epic. That's exactly mm. what it says. And this, uh, ironically, is what saves him. That's the only way he could have defeated the monster. Swords won't cut the critter, critter's hide. <laughs> but so he, he can tell. But he can tear his shoulder out by the oh, roots. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> that's a gruesome kind of a image. But that's... well, it's set out beautifully. It says that Grendel can kill thirty men in a night. Then we're told in the original epic that Beowulf has the strength of 30 men in his grip. Aha, equally matched. Mm. Yeah, so it sets it up beautifully that way. I did not change anything in the original epic, but I add a great deal of context and background and information, which when you're reading Beowulf, you wonder, well, huh, why? (laughs) I try to explain the why. Now, one of the themes you say is finding and developing the courage to respond to life's challenges. So you're taking this, you're pushing the limits, but there's this theme that we all have to fight our monsters. Absolutely, absolutely. Whether your monster is a mother-in-law who hates you, (laughs) (laughs) or uh, finding your place in a new country, or simply dealing with uh, a nasty cousin, we all have challenges. And so I, uh, I've got a friend who recites Beowulf for a living, Benjamin Bagby, who goes around the country reciting Beowulf. And he commented to me after he'd read the book um, that it was, it was so real, true to everyday life in, in our times. I thought that was an interesting comment. And We're what not a- living in 6th century Scandinavia, but we have similar kinds of challenges. And what about revenge? Ah, this is a big thing in their culture. If somebody kills your father, you've got to kill their father. Sort of like the Hatfield and McCoys in our country. Mm-hmm. And it goes on and on and on. And this is a, a major social norm. And I didn't want to change that because that was a belief at the time. But I wanted to show the results of that. Where does it lead to? Well, of course, obviously, it leads to destruction of families and... and uh, sometimes even losses of whole villages. So I'm sort of subtly introducing the consequences of revenge without trying to be preachy about the the dead end that it is. And one of the great challenges that Freya must face, she has to learn who she can trust. Absolutely. For example, this unfirth figure, she trusts him, he becomes her rune master, teaches her how to cut runes and use runes. But other people aren't so sure. 
At first, her mother trusts him, and then after a while, she's not so sure. So Unferth is, a, is an ambiguous figure that I help. I want to leave him open a little bit so that the reader can make up their own minds about whether he's trustworthy. Is she a fool to put her trust in him, or is he going to be a major player in her survival? So book two, we follow Beowulf back into Sweden uh, and his tribe, the Geats. The Geats, mm -hmm. sometimes pronounced Yates, but nobody really knows. <laughs> nobody really knows. And all we know is that he came from central Sweden, sort of along the eastern coast, uh, the province known as Bohuslan, the big rocky coastline. And is that fact? Is that historical fact? On no the... one can say that for sure. There's okay. only one historical fact in the whole original epic, and that's that Beowulf's king, uh, Higlak, was killed in a raid in Frisia in about 520s or 516s, and that's historical fact because it's corroborated by other people. Mm -hmm. That's the only fact in the whole thing. Beowulf could be a total fiction. And, of course, you're going to create book three down the road. Uh, my intention is to make it a trilogy because I want to... Uh, one of the reasons I got interested in Vikings in the first place, most people, I, I presume, know that the English days of the week are named from Viking or from Norse gods and goddesses. Hmm. Like Thursday, that's Thor's day. Wednesday, that's Woden's day. Woden, Wotan, Odin, etc. Mm -hmm. And once I discovered that, I thought, well, what's the connection between Norse culture and English culture. And in order to explain that a little bit, I have to write the third book, <laughs> which goes to England, and this will be after Beowulf is dead, but this character of Freya Walru will continue into all three. So I'm, I love to research, I love to travel, I love to find out things and, and answer my why questions. So that's what I'm doing. Having a great time doing it, too. Well, Donita, we have just a little time left. Any other closing thoughts? Uh, I'd like the readers to know that they don't have to have read Beowulf to enjoy this novel. And if they like to find out something about uh, the personal lives of historical and, and characters in literature, both, uh, this is the book to read. People have told me it's a page-turner. Faces in the Fire, book one, The Women of Beowulf. And... The author is Donita L. Rogers. Donita, tell us how to get your book. You can uh, order it from iUniverse directly. You can ask for it at major bookstores. You can get it online as an ebook from Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.